welcome to day two of TCT 360. Um, and welcome to this Women in 3D Printing Fireside Chat. I'm Laura Griffiths, I am TCT's Head of Content, and I'm very excited today to be joined by Kristen Wilheron, who is the President of Women in 3D Printing and also General Manager for Powderbed Solutions at Nexa 3D, and also Eliana Fu, who is this year's TCT Women in 3D Printing Innovator Award winner, so I'm very excited about that, and also Industry Manager for Medical and Aerospace at Trump. Um, today we're going to be talking quite generally and running through quite a few topics. Um, do feel free to chime in if you do have any questions yourself, but we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the challenges we've talked about in additive manufacturing over the last couple of days uh, from the conference, things like sustainability, uh, supply chain, but also touching on women 3D printing, uh, their ambitions and also challenges around diversity in the additive manufacturing industry. So I think we will just get straight into it and I really want to give you both the opportunity to properly introduce yourselves and also talk about your journeys into the additive manufacturing industry. So, Kristen, let's start with you, maybe. You can talk about how you got into this industry and also a little bit more about what you're doing right now. Okay, um, so as uh, Laura said, I'm Kristen Mulheron. Um, I'm uh, president of Women in 3D Printing and general manager of Powderbed Solutions at Nexa 3D. Um, my journey has been... Um, it's, it's, it's been really interesting and, and it's really exciting because it's all kind of culminated at what I'm doing at Nexa. So I actually started on the metal side of the business, um, actually here in the UK at a company called LPW. Um, and the, uh, it was a, they made the metal powders for uh, powder bed fusion technologies. Um, that was a really cool introduction and I'll never forget it because I got over here to England and I started and within about a month I went to Formnext and I remember being, getting to form next and just thinking, holy cow, this this is the industry I'm going to stay in. There's no question about it. And I think most of us have been in that situation. I, you know, I'm always shocked when people leave this industry because it's just it's just cool, right? It's just a fascinating and cool industry, um, and we're going to such interesting places. Um, from there, I actually ended up moving on to Thermo Fisher Scientific, where I worked on the analytical uh, instrumentation. So we developed an SEM specifically targeting additive manufacturing. Um, it's kind of a random part of the industry, but um, it was uh, it was really interesting as well because I got to be essentially the subject matter expert for uh, out of manufacturing at Thermo Fisher. Then I moved over to HP where I helped launch the metal jet printer. Um, again, I'm still all, only focused on the metal side of the business. Um, but then after a bit of time, I moved over to MJF where that's the first foray I went into plastics, um, which was super interesting. Of course, MJF is so uh, prevalent throughout the industry, so it gave me a big exposure into a lot of the different applications within um, the various industries, across all industries, really. Um, then I had my own consulting business for several years, um, and that was really where my, my knowledge base really took off because I worked with literally everybody in the industry doing that, um, from powder suppliers to nonprofits to um, service bureaus and across the board. Um, and then I ultimately ended up at Nexa3D at the beginning of this year where uh, I'm in charge of the powder bed fusion or powder bed technologies. Um, which uh, we're launching a new SLS printer essentially this fall. So um, it's very, very exciting. Um, Nexa 3D, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but we've had a big push over the last like six months. We've doubled in size and um, there's some pretty exciting stuff going on. So uh, I can't wait. I think next year, hopefully I'll be here and I can tell you some really cool stuff. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of exciting stuff going on in Nexa 3D. Uh, one of the applications was in um, our awards last night. You can go find out more on stand G22 if you want to learn more about uh, those machines and those various applications. But Eliana, um, I know last night when you gave a bit of an intro to, to your career in the industry, our host Jason Bradbury was super impressed by some of the things that, you, that you've worked on. Uh, tell us about how you got into AM and what you're up to now. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Laura. And um, thank you, Kristen, for also welcoming me into Women in 3D Printing. Um, so I'm industry manager for aerospace and medical at Trump. I actually started in traditional uh, material science. So I've master's and PhD from Imperial College, but my whole career, I'd only ever done traditional metallurgy, traditional manufacturing. So for titanium, billet bar, sheet plate, coil, and I only really, well, I'd say in the last uh, eight, to, eight to 10 years, been involved deeply in 3D printing. I first learned about it, actually, when I was at TWI in Sheffield, where my co-workers actually worked on a powder, uh, laser blown powder deposition project uh, for Rolls-Royce. And I worked on forging projects. And so I was looking at their stuff with like curiosity going, oh, blown powder deposition, that's cute. Goes back to forging, you know? And um, so it was only years later when I was at the titanium company, I noticed that more and more of my customers were asking for product for 3D printing. We didn't make it. Um, and then I noticed that more and more job descriptions for like traditional roles like forge product metallurgists were disappearing. Like you could count the number of vacancies in North America on one hand. And that was very scary versus if you looked at job descriptions for additive manufacturing engineer, there were tons of jobs. So I made an intentional decision to get into AM because I really thought that was the future. And so I learned about it. I mean, I started off by getting right on the job, stuck into it when I joined SpaceX. And so I was in supplier technology. So it's basically looking at any technologies, including materials and processes that SpaceX doesn't have in-house. And so a lot of that was raw material supply, powder and wire. And then I realized it's the same people making the uh, metallic product. It's just like a different division, a different division of carpenter, different division of ATI or, or so on. And I could read the material specs and I understood them. And I was like, oh, hey, this isn't too bad. I can make the jump here. And then I did classes online, like I took the MITx Pro certificate in additive uh, manufacturing and design, which is, pretty good course for anybody who's working as a professional and doesn't want to go back and do like a whole master's degree or anything. And then I really got into it at um, Relativity Space where I was senior engineer for um, additive processes. So I was again looking at materials but also processes. Um, so powder bed fusion, DED, and especially the WAM process that Relativity uses to uh, build the rocket there. So yeah, that's basically how I got into into AM. Yeah, super interesting stuff there, and and really interesting that you say about all the uh, the the job availability as well, and additive manufacturing, everything leaning towards that. Because sometimes I think people maybe don't know that those those jobs are out there. So it's really cool. So let's talk a little bit about women in three D printing. Then we are here at this women in three D printing fireside chatting. Kristen, you took over as the president last year of Women in 3D Printing. It is a huge role. I know you're always super busy with it. What made you want to take on this position? And just tell us a little bit about what your ambitions are with Women in 3D Printing. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I guess I'll start at the beginning. So about four years ago, I was the Portland, Oregon ambassador is how I got involved in Women in 3D Printing in the first place, uh, where I live in, is, is in Portland, Oregon. Um, and honestly, I did it um, largely because I was starting my own business and it was, you know, good for networking, you know. I, I, it was, I had um, not the altruistic ambitions, I think, that, um, 
you know, you would expect. But the thing that's really interesting is as I got further and further into it and I got to know more and more people, my passions and my, my, my drive to, you know, kind of expanding this, this organization really grew exponentially, you know. Um, I realized you know, I didn't get into AM until well within my career. And a big reason for that is, you know, I graduated with an engineering degree from school and I had no idea what my options were um, in terms of careers. You know, I happened to fall into aerospace, um, you know, but it was totally unintentional. And then I just fell into, and then ultimately I fell into AM. And I just, I really want to be able to set, um, show people, so young women out there, you know, some of the opportunities that you can have. You know, you don't have to have an engineering degree. We have Sarah Gerke on our, on our board that she had a theater degree. Um, you know, we have a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds and there's a lot of opportunities that I think is really interesting and really important to show young women and, and men out there um, what the what you could do essentially and be a bit more intentional about it. Um, uh, I forget what the rest of the question was. <laughs> oh, so the ambitious with it. So um, Women in 3D Printing was started originally as a blog uh, seven or eight years ago, and ultimately it was began as the, the the motto I suppose was closing the gender gap within added manufacturing. Um, we came to realize over the last year or so, you know, that it was a bit, we could do a lot more with it. We've, we've grown exponentially over the last few years and there's a lot more we, we could we could attack. And so we kind of changed our, our viewpoint on things and now our, our statement, I suppose, is more along the lines of we want to create an industry that's more representative of the world we live in. Um, and, you know, what that means obviously is, you know, you look around, look at the outside world, look at, you know, what that population looks like. And you look around, you know, this event and any event in AM and you can see it's obviously it's not it's not the same population. So we just want to kind of translate that, you know, more um, not just women, LGBTQ, um, different, you know, racial profiles, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educations. You know, it's, it needs to be more more holistic. Um, and, and I, the reason I feel quite st so strongly about that is, you know, we have this industry that's so fast moving and there's so much going on. And if we all have the same human in one team, it's, you're just not going to innovate at the speed that you need to be able to be competitive. So it's, you know, outside of the societal impacts of this, really truly for business, you know, we need to have a lot of different viewpoints. You know, I'm hiring a bunch right now for my team. And I want to, you know, if we are going to actually move as fast as we need to go, we need to have people from varying degrees of education, different kinds of backgrounds, different kinds of, you know, where they grew up, where, what their perspectives are. Um, and so other than, like I said, the more altruistic viewpoints, it's critical to be successful as a business as well. Yeah, and I've thankfully heard that quite a bit this week too, just speaking to exhibitors and um, something I'm hearing is people looking for that creative element when they're looking for um, new people on their teams. They're not necessarily thinking about what a traditional engineer looks like, but think about these other skills as well that can be really beneficial to such a fast-paced industry like ours. Eliana, last night you took home the award, which is right in front of you there, and this year's TCT Women in 3D Printing Innovator Award. It's an award that we established with the Women in 3D Printing Network in 2019 um, to recognize all of the great work happening with Women in 3D Printing, and um, you're such a worthy winner, Eliana, and I just wanted you to just comment on how you feel about taking home this award and also just about the importance of shining a light on the achievements of women in our industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm uh, so honored to get this award. I can't even tell you. Um, when I saw that um, the other um, nominees in the list, I was blown away because all of them are 
powerhouses in their own right and all of them could and should be winners. Um, so I, I, the fact that I walked away with this, I can't even believe it. But um, I also have been very involved with Women in 3D Printing. Actually, our Los Angeles chapter ambassador, Lindsay Zindrowski, um, drafted me in. Um, so we did a couple of events with her when I was at Relativity Space. And events for Women in 3D Printing can be anything from like a lunch and learn to a simple happy hour where you're just networking with people over a beer. And believe me, near SpaceX, there's plenty of like, nice breweries there. <laughs> um, so we, we used to do a lot of that kind of thing as well. And um, uh, I also got involved, or I was drafted, by uh, Mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. Um, he had a, a committee for advanced manufacturing. So it's basically looking at technologies, including additive manufacturing, to make um, companies and industry all kinds of industry in the Los Angeles area and surrounding um, more innovative and more up-to-date and to increase job turnover and, and so forth. And so all of those things together, I thought, what a great way to network and pull this stuff together. 50% um, of people who attend the meetings are straight up looking for jobs. And I think that is exactly how you're going to recruit into the industry because everybody wants to get involved so I thought that that's a great way to meet people and network and um, find out information and find out information on the companies and the employers and the people the machine manufacturers and powder suppliers and all those kind of things where you can get involved and it, it you don't even have to be an engineer you might even be interested in like the finance side or the marketing side or if you're a designer uh, how to use that creative part of your brain that some people don't access on a daily basis because we're just plowing through getting material out the door. So I think that um, this organization helps pull all that together. And then for young people, um, especially the sort of uh, middle school girls, for example, that w uh, we did a lot of work with middle school girls of color, particularly because those seem to get lost at a certain age and then don't enter into STEM careers because they don't even know that those things are open to them. So organizations like Women in 3D Printing help bring those things together. And especially in the Los Angeles or well, Inglewood area where we were in um, early days of relativity, that's an area that's not very well represented in STEM careers. And so identifying those people before they get lost in whatever system that they get uh, moved into, um, it's, it's a huge, huge um, and important step forward. And um, I then moved to, I gotta say I moved to Las Vegas, so I moved back into my old house. Um, and there really isn't much 3D printing industry there. So now I kind of help women in 3D printing on a kind of national basis. Mm -hmm. So for example, if there's a chapter, there is a chapter in Detroit, and I help that ambassador. There's um, a chapter in Chicago, and then so Trump has sponsored many women in 3D printing events all over the country, mm -hmm. in fact. So that's been a great thing to be part of. So I just want to kind of continue with something you mentioned then about you know inspiring the next generation. And I know that Women in 3D Printing has your next gen program. I know that you're going to be doing a lot more with that, especially with your partnership that was announced with SME um, earlier this year. And so Eliana, there was a, a comment that you made in a recent issue of SME's Voices Amplified magazine that I wanted just to get you to elaborate on a little bit. And you talked about 
how you discovered material science and it was this moment of realizing you, that's about what's finding out what stuff is made out of um, which is such a, a kind of a, a simple way to look at it um, and it kind of lit the spark and interest in in that industry and I just wondered if you think um, there's a better way that maybe this industry might be able to communicate with the next generation you know to, to light that spark in them you know what what really do we need to be to be saying about this industry I mean if you're an engineer I think for especially in metal AM your fundamentals comes from traditional material science and so we've been doing traditional metallurgy for 7,000 years or since the Bronze Age so basically if you think of like traditional um, processes and how they translate into additive so laser powder bed fusion is like the offspring of casting and welding. If you understand casting and welding from the traditional world, you will have a place in metal AM. You know, there's the understanding is, is still there. It's just the microstructure and <laughs> melt pool is like much smaller, you know, so those things take place on a, a, a micro level or, or nano level, if, if you like. So, I th but I think that curiosity and the drive to understand what is stuff made out of or how can I make stuff better. So I've never worked for that company, but I like the company motto of the company Philips, which is let's make things better. And I think that's what the definition of an engineer is, is someone who uses the application of science to make things better. And you can think of, yeah, additive manufacturing, special, I've got to go back to Metal AM all the time because that's what I know, so sorry about that. But um, that's kind of like how I feel um, if you want to take the best things that you know of the traditional metalworking world. And I worked in Sheffield where it's like metal bashing, home of stainless steel and stuff yeah. like that. But it's also new technology, laser AM, things like that, advanced manufacturing. And then making, using those tools or the know-how to translate into this new technology to make the part better, to make it faster, more efficient, um, more lightweight, and you know, reduce your buy to fly ratio, all of those things that we've been interested in for forever, basically. Kristen, what about you? Any thoughts on how we might inspire that with the next generation? Oh gosh. Um, before, before I do want to make one real quick comment though, is that it's funny because my background's in material science as well. Um, and it's exactly, I had the exact same reason I went to material science <laughs> was to understand why things are the way they are. Um, and it's funny to see just as a, as a side note, you know, when I was studying material science that, um, no one even knew what it was. Like it was like a really, you know, I don't know if you had the same experience and now it's such a huge, um, part of this industry. So that's pretty cool. Um, but, you know, I think for me, honestly, I don't think inspiring people to, you know, f into this industry is a, is hard. You know, it's more about, because it's a cool industry. Who doesn't want to work in 3D printing? Who doesn't want to work in an industry that is literally, you know, taking off and we're only just at the very beginning right now? I mean, it's just, to me, it's a no-brainer. And so it's not about coming up with creative ways to inspire people is just getting people exposed to it, right? And and I think, again, that's what a lot of women 3D printing is about, is you know, just telling people that this is what we do and this is the opportunities that you that you can have if you if you get involved. Um, and I think, you know, to kind of expand on something that Eliana was talking about with the happy hours is that, you know, it's so fun to go to these happy hours because you socialize and you network with what you people would traditionally say are your competitors, let's say. And I've never once, when I was at HP, I never thought of carbon as a competitor because realistically, it's, it's one of the things that makes this industry so cool 
is it's really our real competitors is traditional manufacturing and our real competitor is just that lack of knowledge and that lack of adoption and so you know when you look at traditional what you think is traditional competitors we're really all working together as this one big community to kind of battle the outside people you know um, and I love that about it and that's one of the things that I've gotten a lot of with being a part of women in 3d printing is socializing and networking with all these different people um, that I wouldn't have spoken with before and I think those people I find are what really inspires me and what really drives me is just getting that big exposure of the possibilities out there. Now I do want to move on to more about the technology itself but I'm so glad that you've both just talked so passionately about materials because that segues quite nicely to my next question so we're increasingly hearing in additive manufacturing that it all starts with materials. Materials we know are super important you've both got backgrounds in materials is that a sentence you would agree with that it all starts with materials and also what's kind of interesting you most in that area right now? Well, I think we're a bit biased for starters. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, of course it starts with materials. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, it's also the process. So typically like the last two jobs that I had before Trump, um, so at SpaceX and at Relativity Space, the team that I was in was M&P, materials and process. You really can't have a product without one or the other. If one fails, the other one fails. If, if the material works, but the process doesn't, you won't get apart. If the process works, but the material isn't available, you won't get apart. And so part of that also is, um, I wanna print this, can I, can I do this? Uh, yeah, you can do it, but the material isn't available. Why isn't the material available? No one's developed the parameters. Why has no one ever developed the parameters? Because the material's not available. Why is the material not available? Because no one's ever asked to, to make this part that way that you want to do it. And so it's a chicken and egg. So for, you, for example, in space, and I, sorry, I got a bias towards space because that's where I've been working lately. Um, there were so many things that lend themselves to metal AM, for example. Um, so rocket engines and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So where's the material gonna come to print those? But more importantly, what, what machine are you gonna do it on? What is the platform that you're doing it on? So you can't really have one without the other. If they're not working in sync, you'll never get apart. Chris, mm -hmm. any of the comments other than been biased towards materials? <laughs> um, no, I think I think Eliana really touched on it really well. I mean, it, 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 my background as well is in M and P engineering, so um, I, I'm going to have a very similar viewpoint on that. Is that you know the processes, um, you know the one thing that um, I think we haven't touched on though is you know you, Eliana talked on you know how uh, if you have a background in traditional manufacturing, it translates quite well, and I think it's something that we need to focus on a little bit more because I think one of the one of the down one of the faults we have as an industry is we're too focused on additive manufacturing and not, and almost really reinventing the wheel. There's so much that could be learned from traditional manufacturing. And that's where, you know, at Nexa, with the product line I'm working on, you know, I'm trying to bring that more in because, uh, you know, things like automation and things um, that are already exist in, let's say, injection molding, we need to start adopting that and bring that into our industry and not try to reinvent everything from scratch based on what, you know, AM. And I think that that's probably one of the few things I think where we're, we're a little bit, we have it a little bit wrong. Um, and we need more people that come from traditional manufacturing to help us make, grow, grow faster mm -hmm. in that way. 
So let's talk a little bit about applications then. And we've had some good examples already. I mean, what's cooler than talking about printing rocket engines, for example? Um, but Nexus VD uh, was part of our award celebrations last night with your case study with a Pepsi company, which is pretty cool. And one of our editors, Sam Davis, covered the story <laughs> a couple of months ago. Um, so it's a great example of application discovery. It's an end use part, but it's not something, you know, you're not printing bottles, you're printing parts that are part of the manufacturing line, inserts and molds, that sort of thing. And it's a great example of application discovery, something that you might not, not necessarily think of straight away. I just wondered if you've got any thoughts on how we help people with application discovery and additive manufacturing, because it is often that difficult first move, you know, what what do I start with? How do I start? How do I know this part's going to be good for additive manufacturing? Any kind of thoughts or advice on that? Um, well, the Pepsi, the Pepsi uh, case study is really interesting, actually. Um, and it's a great example of, of utilizing um, AM where it's needed and, and not trying to create something that's not, right? Um, you know, th that particular case study is interesting because we used actually two different technologies and we had several collaborations involved as well. And so, you know, the, the mold inserts were printed using our NXE technology and then the caps were uh, created using uh, our ZIP desktop printer in collaboration with Adafab. So there was a lot of different steps here and a lot of different collaborations that came to this solution. Um, but the thing that Pepsi really has is they have, you know, they have experience in this and they know, they, they knew what they're doing and that they used it for where it makes sense. Um, and it doesn't have to be flashy, you know, and I think that's where, again, we go sometimes in the wrong direction is trying to find something really flashy. Some of the best applications and, and some of the applications that have the most potential uh, in AM are the ones that are, you know, like a, a mold insert, you know, that's, you know, that's not super exciting, but it's a great application and there's so much potential for it. And so I think the key is just focusing on what makes sense. Um, it's a very, you know, just what's, what's logical. I mean, it seems a bit simple, but I think sometimes simple is right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In our last magazine, we had that story with Pepsi and a story about printing rockets at NASA and my younger sister who doesn't have much interest in 3D printing thought those molds and inserts with, with Pepsi were much more interesting than my story about rockets. So <laughs> it doesn't have to be the most flashy. Eliana, what about you? Any kind of thoughts on that application discovery process? Yeah, I mean, I learned about um, what makes sense, as you said, Kristen, um, at Relativity Space because the when I hired on, I was like the first female engineer mm. um, that they had. And um, I learned very quickly that the first generation or the first iteration of the rocket was probably not going to be fully 3D printed, but only where it makes sense. Where it makes sense, I think, are things where you can save yourself lead time or where you can actually reduce the number of parts. You can reduce your labor hours, um, the amount of manual labor that goes on in assembling rocket ships, components, um, and really those kind of things. Um, I think the whole idea of trying to use 3D printing just to 3D print something, oh, you know, oh, I'm not happy with this, so print it. Why can't it be printed? Because it can't. It's, we're, we're not there with the technology yet. So not everything can or should be printed at that time, but where it makes sense. Where it makes sense to me most is where you're going to use the technology to achieve something that you couldn't do otherwise. Mm. And or you use the time saving that additive gives you in order to get a launch up. So we've seen with this recent conflict in Ukraine, um, some kind of uh, uh, restriction on Russian uh, rocket ships flying, right? 
So they're not going to be taking some supply missions to ISS and various other things. But if we can accelerate the sort of adoption of AM so that other people who are flying and launching spacecraft can get their parts in orbit faster or get their um, vehicles in into space faster. That's a huge advantage. Okay, I want to move on to some of the challenges in additive manufacturing then, and I want to touch on some of the key themes that we've heard about over the last couple of days at TTT. The first one is supply chain. And I know that additive manufacturing has had this real kind of heightened interest in the last few years when we've had um, lots of disruption around supply chain. How do we use additive in that as either a temporary measure or to, you know, to rethink our, our supply chains? Um, and I just wanted to get both of your thoughts and maybe Eliana, we could go with you first um, from your perspective of medical and aerospace because I sat in on a panel session yesterday about supply chain and the general consensus was that um, maybe we don't need to be talking to the 3D printing industry and convincing them about supply chain. It's more about convincing the people within supply networks, convincing people outside the industry about additive manufacture. And I just wondered, working in those industries, what is the current reality like for additive manufacturing within those supply chains? I mean, I could go on about this subject for hours. Uh, Please do. <laughs> but um, we have half an hour. Right. So one of the, the key things that I noticed about Additive a long time ago, well, I say about six years ago uh, when I was still at SpaceX, um, I made an inquiry to one of the tra traditional um, titanium mills for standard aerospace-grade sheets. I think it was 6242. And it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. I asked for a standard grade. I asked for um, a standard thickness. So maybe it's 040, one millimeter thick or something. And they said, oh yeah, yeah, if you want the minimum order, the lead time is 52 weeks. And I was like, what, 52 weeks from the day you place an order? Hey, man, that's like a whole year. Like I will have already launched like three rockets by the time I get your sheet. So why would I do that? And um, even for some other parts, like a um, second stage vacuum engine, um, there are some refractory materials that are only available from very few suppliers in the US. And the lead time for the sheet alone to get to your dock is 36 weeks. And that doesn't in even include the time for cutting, forming, welding, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it's shocking to me. So that's where we can really use, okay, if I have an AM process to make this part instead, I can really say, I mean, like I don't have to be waiting 36 weeks just for the raw material to show up on my dock. That's crazy. So if, more, if we can get more of the supply chain to understand, yes, there is a demand, you're gonna have to start improving your process downstream so that you can get more of the material flowing through the system, then we won't have some of these huge disruptions. Another thing that we saw was where now uh, you can't get a vehicle. So let's say you wanted to buy a Toyota Tundra, right? So my, my boyfriend actually went through this. He's, he, went, he went to the local Toyota dealer. Oh, that'll be like six months, but we can take your deposit now for a vehicle. So you better hope your car doesn't break down in the next six months. Otherwise, you'd be riding your bike to work. <laughs> oh, why is that? Oh, there's no chips. So why, why is there a chip delay? So uh, it's, it's all because the chips are manufactured in Asia and then they have to go through blah, blah, blah. And there's shipping that's all stuck at uh, the port of Long Beach or whatever it is, or port of LA, and they can't unload the containers. And so everything has a knock-on effect. We can't even get boba tea in Las Vegas right now because there's no boba coming. So nobody knows how to make tapioca pearls, apparently. 
Um, but <laughs> it's, so little things like that. So what I've noticed is there's some suppliers, so going to include Trump, sorry, in this, that are taking some imaginative steps to get machines to people faster. So let's say you take an order for a machine and it's going to be at a customer and maybe the typical lead time is 12 weeks, but with ship, a chip delays and shipping delays, it's going to be pushed out to that. What you can do is try and assemble as much of the machine as you can and stage it very close to the customer or maybe even at the customer. And then when the final components come, put it in, get the service technician, you know, sign it off and then QC check, bang, ready to go. And so you've saved your customer weeks of waiting for a huge delay not to have equipment. And so I think that's part of that um, thinking outside of the box or thinking using that other side of your brain that you never use to try and solve some of these problems actually is a good idea. And Kristen, what about you? Are you seeing that kind of conversation happening with your customers and, and your end users that are looking at 3D printing as an alternative to supply chain challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think the Pepsi, the Pepsi case study that we talked about earlier is a really good example because, you know, I think we talk about using 3D printing um, as you know, an alternative to um, creating uh, tooling, right? And because tooling can take you know 52 weeks, or you know, or even half a year uh, to get just even the tooling. Whereas the Pepsi case study is, you know, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. We're not using 3D printing to print the end-use parts. We're printing using 3D printing to make the mold inserts that would tip traditionally take you know half a year to make. Um, which then accelerates the whole innovation process. So you can do low low volume runs with these mold inserts um, and create a lot of different variety. Um, so I think you know that's that's another example outside of what you traditionally think of the supply chain issues that come along with 3D printing. Okay, the next big challenge I want to talk about is sustainability, which I know a lot of people are very very interested in, in hearing about and. I know that Nexa 3D, Kristen, has been made a huge push for sustainability. Um, there's the Forest Nation project, which you're a part of, but also um, your recent Zip machine as well. I know that's been built with uh, sustainable materials in mind too. Um, I think sometimes in additive manufacturing, we can think of it as a green process because you think, okay, I'm putting down less material. I can make things close to the point of need. If I only want need to make one thing, I, I don't have to make a thousand. Um, so those things sound very sustainable, but sometimes, um, you know, perhaps it's not actually the, the reality. It's maybe not as sustainable as we think it is. So I just wondered, um, where are we kind of currently up to with 3D printing sustainability uh, merit, and also what role does it have to play in creating a more sustainable future? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, we we talk about 3D printing as as being a sustainable process because it's you know inherently we're we're you know it's it's um, additive versus subtractive. Um, but I think one of the things that we fall into is there's a lot of greenwashing in this industry, and that's something we have to be very intentional about and be very aware of and and acknowledge, and you know not kid ourselves right that that just because it's it's additive versus subtractive that it's this this you know, solution to everything. There's a lot more to it than that, um, and I think you know at Nexa and you touched on you know we have a lot of different different initiatives that we're doing you know from with the Zip um, and with the NXE product lines we have uh, the X Clean. A washing washing solution, um, which is designed as an alternative to IPA, and it's, so it's more um, recyclable um, and it's safer for transportation. Um, we then, with the zip as well, we've designed it with a lot of aluminum in mind. Um, so the canisters, the zip itself, and then the canisters are, are as well are um, made from aluminum, uh, which is obviously more recyclable as well. 
Um, and then there's the forestation project. So you know, for every printer we sell and every employee, they're planting a new tree in Tanzania. Um, so you know, it's simple things like that for you know, the reforestation, but then also that creates, uh, you know, helps with the food supply as well in Tanzania because they're fruit growing trees. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities out there where you can, you know, affect sustainability and affect the environment in ways that, you know, again, it's thinking outside the box and coming up with a lot of different ways and, but, and, and not kidding ourselves that, um, you know, getting out of the greenwashing. <laughs> and Eliana, what about you? Any thoughts there and maybe perhaps on the fact that 3D printing does feel like a relatively young industry, even though it's not really We've been around for 30 plus years, but do we have a better opportunity there maybe to, to make a change? Yeah, I could also go on about this subject for hours as well, but I won't. Um, 20 minutes. Yeah, sorry. So I have a huge problem where people think that it, by 3D printing a part that it really is, I don't know, it's trying to reduce the bio. So let's take titanium, for example, a very expensive material. Why is it expensive? In traditional methods, because we still use the crawl process to reduce it from its ore. So you take the material out of the ground, you have to separate it from its ore, you go through the carbochlorination process, reduce that with magnesium, and then get ingots so to get the sponge product, and then you have to melt an ingots at least three times. Um, maybe twice if you get standard product. And so what I'm, what I'm complaining about here is the energy involved in that process. We haven't moved past the crawl process. So even though I'm 3D printing with titanium powder, let's say, I've still gone through the whole crawl process to get that powder, which I then have to gas atomize so I've melted it yet another time, so I've put even more energy into it. So is it really sustainable? When I add up the energy costs of all of those things, is it really the right choice? And so the, let's say, aircraft part manufacturer is gonna say, of course it is, because I only use this much of material versus you know a whole forging that was like you know 500 pounds or something but the reality is if you measure the energy that's involved when you get to that part um is it really any better than machining from a, a block and losing all of that in chips at least the chips can be recycled so i think if we think about that kind of thing we need to actually step back and say is the way that I'm even getting the metal powder a sustainable process? You know, um, as the machines get, powder bed machines get bigger and bigger and bigger, I need even more powder to put into a hopper. So it never ends. I haven't really solved the problem. I've just put more demand on my powder supplier. Keep giving me more metal. And so unless something happens at that end of the, of the chain, to actually say, okay, maybe there is a way to make l true low-cost titanium powder that can be used directly in 3D printing. So there's some groups like Iperion X that are working towards those things. And then there are some other groups like the AMGTA that are trying to bring awareness to users and machine manufacturers and people like that to say, make your processes and your materials, so materials and process, more sustainable. And think about the energy costs in things like transportation, shipping, packaging, how you reuse the bottles that the powder comes in, how you, you know, read a QR code so that when you stack your powder in your inventory, it's more accessible or easy for you to um, do, you know, first in, first out and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, and I think thankfully we are seeing more life cycle analysis done that does look at that full end-to-end -end process. So hopefully we'll have more of that, that, that data soon. And the third challenge that I want to talk about is production. And Kristen, I know we spoke to you a couple of months back now for TCT Mag um, about some of the challenges and the bottlenecks around AM for production. And one of the things that you, well, two of the things actually you talked about, one of them was materials being cost prohibitive, but also automation, which I know you touched on a little bit earlier too. Can you just elaborate a little bit on um, the bottlenecks around automation, the, the, the need for it in additive manufacturing? Well, I think those are the two things, in, in my opinion, that really are holding us back as an industry probably the most. You know, and I've always said it, and I've, I'm a broken record on the materials side of things, is that, you know, if we really want to be considered a traditional manufacturing method, we've got to bring the cost of the materials down. Um, you know, and it, it's really, it, fit, it fits very well into, into what you just said, Eliana. Um, but if we're going to get to the volumes that we want to be to be able to consider it again a traditional manufacturing, a real manufacturing method, right now the material costs are just simply too high. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think that that is the primary cost contributor to the process um, in addition to automation. So, And w with the automation side of things, it's kind of what I was touching on earlier about trying to not reinvent the wheel, right? Like, there's a lot of things we can do. We're, we're doing AGV-enabled uh, build units, you know, from the product line for the QLS at Nexa, which, you know, we will have, we're building from the ground up because it doesn't exist. But at the same time, when you look at injection molding and you look at traditional manufacturing methods, there's a lot of automation that's been going on for, for a long time. And I think a lot of people are trying to reinvent that within AM, and it doesn't make any sense. Like, let's take the lessons learned from these industries that have been around five times longer than us at a minimum, right? Um, and bring those in and implement those in our industry rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. Eliana, what about you? Um, yeah, I, I could also go on about this subject for an hour, but <laughs> my, my other thought on this um, sort of as people ramp up, let's say, for example, uh, I want to start a rocket ship company, so I'm going to print my first vehicle, and then the next year I'm going to scale up and I'm going to print two, and the next year I'm going to print four, and then I'm going to print six, and then 12. And so I'm going to ramp up and ramp up. How many machines do I need? And I have to figure out my, my costs, my capital costs, and you know, hiring people to run those machines, and the machines have to be filled 24 hours a day so that they get maximum utilization. Am I doing the right thing there? And I would question, uh, people who are only stuck on one process to do that scale up because is it going to be that one technology that in five years time you've bought like a hundred machines and you've got a hundred machines going when you could have actually used this other process over here that's actually going to be faster for you so I'm going to give you an example here so it's the ongoing debate between powder bed fusion and laser DED versus you need powder bed fusion to give you those features and the sort of uh, thin walls and the fine detail and so forth versus with DED where you can print faster but you won't get as good a surface finish and yada yada. So there's got to be a tipping point between those two technologies where one can do very detailed and one can do very fast but you can't get both. There's got to be a point where the economics of scaling up massive amounts of powder bed. It's going to be like when we drive down the, the warehouse in the Indiana Jones movie and we just see like thousands of powder bed machines. How can that possibly be sustainable? I, 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 I just feel that DED has got to get to a point where it has got to get better and I think it will. 
And so for my last couple of questions, I want to talk more about women in 3D printing, but I guess this first one um, does count as an industry challenge because I know that last year, Women in 3D Printing launched your new DEI initiatives, which, Kristen, you touched on a bit earlier, expanding that beyond just getting more women into the additive manufacturing industry. Um, and it's all about um, how helping companies to um, encourage uh, more diversity in, in their workforces. Do you have any comments now on how companies can be proactive about that and, and really making their workforces truly diverse? I mean, I think it's just, it's about being intentional. And, you know, I think it touched on um, before with like even the team. So I'm trying to hire a team right now. And it's not about just hiring more women, right? That's, uh, that, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, it's about hiring people from different perspectives and different backgrounds and d different um, perspectives. You know that is going to make your team more successful. And I think it's it's spreading that word and making that something that um, people recognize rather than you know just hire more women, right? It's, that's not the point. Um, you know, and then uh, it's something I said to Eliana last night. But one of the things I really appreciated about her uh, acceptance speech for the award was she talked a lot about um, you know her experiences and her, and her deep, obvious deep knowledge of science in this industry and I think it's really important that we start to get more of those conversations out there you know this is a wonderful fireside chat um, but I want to see more panels and more presenters you know from diverse backgrounds talking about what they know rather than just being a woman right it's um, you know, the goal, one of the goals we have at Women in 3D Printing is getting, you know, diversity onto panels. So, you know, in, in an ideal world, we should have one woman on every panel, you know, um, you know, one person of color on every panel. Like, you know, bring in these different perspectives so that we're not all hearing different versions of the same story. Um, and it, it's, again, it's not about it being a woman. It's about having that different knowledge and that different perspective. And I think looking at it from that perspective really makes it a much stronger statement and makes it a much more palatable statement, I think, to a lot of people. I think that's something I've always appreciated about women in 3D printing. It's always been about, um, while the conversation does um, lean sometimes to talk about diversity and encouraging more women into the industry, it's always about um, the subject matter and, you know, highlighting people for being experts for what they're actually experts exactly, in. Exactly, exactly. Like, you know, we can talk about a lot more than just being a woman. You know, we have a lot more to bring to the table, a lot more to offer. You know, and, and the perfect example is, you know, our type conference. So we had type conference in January that we put on. It was our second one. Um, we had a, over 150 female speakers, and they were from all over the world. We had several that were from Africa, several, you know, in Asia, different parts of the world that one we don't hear about as much from. Um, and, but again, very few of those presentations were about being a woman, you know, we have the the type stands for technology, industry, people, and economics. So the people track, yeah, you're going to have a little bit more on the, you know, the, the 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 woman topic, right? But the rest of them, we had, you know, over a hundred people on the technology and industry com tracks combined, and there were some really interesting perspectives. And you know, the reason why we wanted to make it an all-female conference, in terms of from the speaker standpoint, is a lot of women, I think, especially, um, just don't get the platform to be able to talk about what they know, or they might be a little bit more shy to put to submit their name in the first place. But that doesn't mean that they don't have something really valuable to offer and something really interesting to share. It's interesting that you mentioned the type conference there because I remember speaking to uh, Women in 3D Printing founder Nora um, not long after the uh, last year's conference, and um, she did say that. You know, she got a little bit of pushback from people that question oh, why why would you need a conference that's just full of, of women? Why do you need that? And I just wondered if you got 
any thoughts on people that have that reaction to, to these types of things? Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, you're gonna, we're gonna, you always get a few of those. I mean, it's gonna happen. Um, and I think, again, it goes back to what I said about, uh, you know, there's a lot of women who have a lot to offer that just maybe don't have, it, it's about giving women the platform to talk about what they know that they might not have otherwise. Um, you know, and the simple response to that is for years, you know, for all time for the most part, there's always been all male panels. No one's ever said anything about that. No one's ever said, why do you have to have all male panels? Well, because that's just what it is. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous argument in that when you look at it from that perspective. Eliana, I want to give you a chance to give your thoughts on, on both of those questions there about being a bit more proactive in the workplace, but also if you do have any thoughts on that kind of pushback. Yeah, I think uh, DEI um, activities for organizations and companies are, they extend way more than just posting a picture of all your female workforce on International Women's Day and saying, I'm done now. Um, I think a, co a company or organizations actually have to be intentional and follow through on, it's not just good enough to print you a t-shirt on Pride Day and then go, here you go, and then go off and then not do anything, not touch the subject or not speak about it again. Um, from everything they do in terms of hiring practice, write a job description that doesn't include, you know, gender biased terms. Most of the people writing the job descriptions don't even know that they're doing that. And so when you, it comes to interviewing people, you look at the candidates, you go, wow, I've got like literally all dudes. Why is that? Because no women applied. Why did no women apply? Because of the way that you, so they don't even realize that they're doing this half of the time. And so that is training of managers um, and it, it, it really goes back to the top. Do the managers and the management who run these organizations are just paying lip service to DEI or actually really doing it? Because what they'll find is if they keep hiring from this, and they tend to do this because that's all they know, hiring from the same pool over and over again, they'll just get clones of themselves. They'll just get the same. And so, the company will never expand. The company will never innovate. The company will never have new ideas because you don't have all these other voices from these different backgrounds. And I'm even talking about educational background, whether it was a material scientist or a mechanical or a propulsion engineer or a chemical engineer or someone who knows how to paint a rocket, for example. So if you hire a company where no one knows how to paint a rocket, you'll never know how to paint a rocket. So that's what I'm talking about. I just want to add on that too. Is I think you know I think what we both are kind of talking about is you know so one of my I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek. If you're not familiar with Simon Sinek and the Golden Circle and you know finding the why and it's like I think that's really critical in terms of telling the story and is it's it's about finding the why. Why are we doing this? What are the reasons? You know, um, and the why is to increase innovation and to increase knowledge base and to accelerate new ideas that's the why you know it's it's the secondary is you know just being good humans right but if we can focus on some the whys that really resonate with a lot of different people um, I think that we'll be a lot more successful in getting you know the, the DEI initiatives accepted and, and integrated into companies. Mm -hmm.